welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm your host, Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Erica. What the hell happened last week? Um, medical problems. Okay, well, what the hell is happening this week? Well, we're going to do crazy stories from the internet. They're both interesting and, in a lot of cases, macabre. Also, some of them are pretty rough, so listener discretion is advised. You're just going to read stories you found on the internet. You are about the laziest wanker ever, aren't you? I'm going to assume that's rhetorical, but no, it's not about being lazy. I actually thought it was a cool idea for an episode. So, without further ado, let's get into it, unless you've got any other observations about me. You're also an idiot. <laughs> Flattery gets you nowhere. What happened to Brandon Swanson? For those who are not familiar with this story, Brandon was a 19-year-old who lived in Marshall, Minnesota. He was returning home from a party recently celebrating his graduation from a community college up in a town north of Marshall called Canby and was on his way home. Along the way, he crashed in a ditch. For some unknown reason, he was taking gravel roads even though the highway between the two towns was a straight shot north to south. I'm guessing he took this route as a joyride type of thing since he loved his car and driving in general. Or maybe he had a little bit too much to drink at the party and didn't want to deal with any state troopers on patrol. Called his dad for a ride and eventually got tired of waiting inside the crashed car and started to walk towards Marshall. He claimed to his dad to see lights of something nearby, then abruptly exclaiming, Oh shit! to his dad while still on the phone, and the call ended. To this day, no one knows what happened to him. No body was found, none of his belongings found, nothing. There's more to the story, but that's a summary. If you want to learn more about it, just dig around. Some of the theories on what happened to Brandon are either he slipped and fell into a river due to not being able to see in the darkness, he got shot and buried somewhere by a belligerent farmer who hated people trespassing on his property, he would rather shoot than ask questions, or he was abducted by aliens, or some other supernatural force could be to blame. No matter the cause, Brandon Swanson remains missing to this day. Aliens? Other supernatural force? I mean, it's possible. They never found his body. If it was in a river, you'd think it would wash up or be found somewhere along the way. So... It wasn't a supernatural event. I know this because the supernatural, although entertaining at times, isn't real. I will listen to a strong case that alien beings exist, but that's where I draw the line. That's all well and good. But I mean, alien- Stop. Before you say anything, you're wrong. Whatever it is you're thinking, it's wrong. So save us all the time and keep your annoying gob shut. Holy hell. All right, cranky pants, on to the next story. Jeez. The skin case. A young Polish student disappeared in Krakow City. A few months later, a ship on the Vistula River stops because something was stuck in the propeller. What was recovered surprised everyone. They'd recovered the skin of missing Katarziana Zawada. To be more specific, a suit made of her skin was recovered. Someone had cut away all of her limbs and her head and created a bodysuit from the remaining skin, which some theorized was probably worn by the murderer for some time. Despite media attention and increased police interest every few years, the perpetrator has never been found. That's just gross. The psychology behind that. Know what I hate about clothes? They're not human skin. The psychology behind it comes from a dark place for sure. Perhaps it was a twisted religious ritual, 
or maybe it was sexual in nature. All anyone, besides the killer, can do is guess. Satan's Toolbox. The transcript of what happened to Shirley Ledford at the hands of the, quote, toolbox killers, end quote. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris is very disturbing and listener discretion should be advised. This is an excerpt from the transcript. At this point, after Bittaker had forced Shirley to fillet him, repeated sounds of administered beating interspersed with loud screams can be heard as Bittaker savagely beats Shirley about the breasts and, to a lesser degree, head. Bittaker then extracted his pliers from the toolbox. Shirley then emits several high-pitched, prolonged screams and cries of agony as Bittaker alternately squeezes and twists her labia, clitoris, and nipples with a pair of pliers. Bittaker then returns the pliers to the toolbox. Binging sounds could also be heard throughout, which are believed to have been made as Shirley came into contact with the walls and inner contents of the van as she writhed and flailed. Ledford, quote, My God, please stop it, end quote. Bittaker, quote, Is this recorder going? End quote. Norris, quote, Yeah, it is, end quote. Bittaker, quote, Scream, baby. Scream some, baby. End quote. That's a bit like the David Parker Ray case. I've had my fill of reading transcripts about guys like these. When you watch a show or hear a podcast talking about these crimes, that's one thing. But when you're actually reading the words of the killer from them directly to you through a transcript, that's an entirely different beast. It makes you feel all dirty. It's ugh. Kelly and Bates. Listener discretion is strongly cautioned. Kelly Ann Bates, born 18 May 1978, died on April 16, 1996, was a British teenager murdered at the age of 17 in Manchester after being tortured for four long weeks. Kelly's eyes were gouged from their sockets up to three weeks before she had actually passed away from drowning in a bathtub. These horrific crimes were committed by her partner, James Patterson Smith. The following is a list of specific injuries suffered by Kellyanne Bates during her torture. Scalding to her buttocks and left leg. Burns on her thigh caused by the application of a hot iron. A fractured arm. Multiple stab wounds caused by knives, forks, and scissors. Stab wounds inside of her mouth. Crush injuries to both hands. Mutilation of the ears, nose, eyebrows, mouth, lips, and genitalia. Wounds caused by a spade or pruning shears. Both eyes gouged out. Stab wounds found in the empty eye sockets. Partial scalping. I think I've had my fill of torture cases for a while. Although I can't feel pain myself, I do know what happens to a victim's mind and body. It's something I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. Well, I do feel pain, and I've been hurt before, but reading and hearing about torture especially like in the middle ages it's just you can't wrap your brain around it what it must have been like in the person's mind leading up to the event let alone during it just ah i can't can't what happened to mary rogers in 1841 one tobacco store in new york was far more popular than the others the reason had little to do with the product rather a beautiful employee by the name of Mary Rogers. Rogers was the object of desire for many. 
and her beauty inspired poetry. One poem in particular ran in the New York Herald. On July 28, 1841, Roger's body was found in the East River. Just three days earlier, she had told her fiancé, Daniel Payne, that she would be visiting her aunt across town and would return the next day. She never returned from that trip. Rogers was last seen at a tavern in New Jersey with a man whom the owner, Frederica Loss, described as tall and mysterious. Soon all the city's large newspapers were covering every detail of the case. In fact, Edgar Allan Poe went on to write about the crime in his 1842 story, The Mystery of Marie Roger. That August, Frederica Loss came forward again claiming that her sons found several items of women's clothing in a swamp near her property. Clothes had clearly been there for quite some time and had shown wear and tear evident of a struggle and included a handkerchief with the initials M.R. embroidered on it. The consensus was that either her fiancé Payne had killed Rogers or that she was a victim of a random act of violence. The case was about to get a lot murkier, however. In October of 1841, Payne committed suicide, leaving behind a note that read, quote, To the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. End quote. Some debated whether Payne's suicide was compelled by the guilt of murdering Rogers or by genuine heartbreak. One year later, the tavern owner, Frederica Loss, was accidentally shot by one of her sons. On her deathbed, she gave a confession about the Rogers case claiming that the mystery man was in fact a doctor who had come to Loss's house to give Rogers an abortion. When the procedure went wrong, Rogers died, and the doctor, with the help of the Loss boys, helped him dispose of the body in the river. However, the autopsy on Rogers' body showed that she wasn't pregnant. While some accept the Loss's confession is true, the case remains unsolved. That one feels like a cover-up to me. Like, she was killed in an accident by somebody in the tavern or something along those lines. And because they didn't want a police investigation, they tried to cover it up or frame someone else or something like that. But I, I don't think it was a deliberate murder. I just, it's my gut feeling. The only thing your gut knows is where the refrigerator is. That make you feel good saying that just now to make you feel all better? Don't give me that shit. You know you're a fatty. You look like a water balloon filled with pulled pork. Oh, you're, uh, you're quite the wordsmith. The Los Angeles Times bombing. On October 1st, 1910, what many would label as the crime of the century, occurred when the building that housed the Los Angeles Times was bombed, resulting in a fire which killed 21 employees and injured 100 more. The investigation and the trial that followed would lead to one of the most heavily covered court cases of all time. In 1903, officials of the U.S. Steel and the American Bridge Company, the dominant company in the iron industry, formed a National Erectors Association with the primary goal to break up the unions in their industries. Don't you dare. Don't I dare what? I saw your eyebrows raise and that creepy grin. Let's pretend I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. When you read that word... You reacted to it, and if you do what I think you're gonna do, I'm going to be angry. What word? What are you even talking about? I'm not going to say it. Would you please just tell me, please? Erectors. The word was erectors, and I know you want to make a juvenile joke about it. Well, I can't 
can't just come up with a joke off the cuff. That's too hard. You did it, you bastard. Why do you have to be such a child? Whoa, calm down. You know, if you actually had a face, your forehead would be really veiny. My God, I hate you. Okay, I'll stop on one condition. Answer a question for me, truthfully. Anything to make this stop. Of these two characters, which is your favorite? Buzz Lightyear or Woody? Hello? Get an answer? Okay, fine. We'll get back into the story, you big party pooper. The association was successful in its campaign, driving all the unions out of its plants except for one, the Iron Workers Union. The Iron Workers Union was getting desperate and eventually turned to violence to spread their message with an explosive campaign. Before the Los Angeles Times bombing, the union had blown up 110 ironworks. While the bombs were set off so that no one was ever killed, they were able to cause thousands of dollars in damage. One of the more outspoken anti-union employers was Harrison Gray Otis, publisher of the Los Angeles Times. After the bombing, a citywide manhunt was conducted in order to find those responsible. Spearheading the search was private detective William Burns. It didn't take him long to learn that the bombing was the work of John J. McNamara, the secretary treasurer of the union, and his brother James. Arrests were made, and soon the case went to trial. The union hired Clarence Darrow to defend the McNamaras. Darrow had successfully defended William Big Bill Hayward, Charles Moyer, and George Pettibone, leaders of the Western Federation of Miners, when they were charged with the murder of a former Idaho governor, Frank Stonenberg, in 1908. Darrow based his case on a faulty timer. The bomb was set to go off at 4 a.m., when no one would be in the building. However, Darrow was concerned with the strength of the case and was allegedly interested in seeking a plea deal to spare the men's lives. The chance for a plea agreement soon went out the window, though, when Darrow was accused of attempting to bribe a jury member. In the end, John McNamara was sentenced to 15 years in prison, and James was given a life sentence. While Darrow was able to avoid the death penalty for the McNamaras, the labor unions accused him of selling out the movement in order to save his own skin. He eventually was charged with two counts of attempting to bribe jurors, of which he was acquitted, though he was told he'd never practice law in California again. Darrow went on to become a famous criminal lawyer opposing the death penalty. Some of his more famous work would be found in the Leopold and Loeb case, the kidnapping of Charlie Ross. Kidnapping wasn't unusual in the 1800s. But the case of Charlie Ross was the first to receive widespread national attention. On July 1, 1874, four-year-old Charlie and his older brother, Walter Lewis, were playing in the front yard of their suburban home in Pennsylvania when a horse-drawn carriage pulled up to their house. Two strange men allegedly offered the boys candy and fireworks in an attempt to lure them into the carriage. The boys agreed and were eventually taken to a store where Walter was told to get out and buy fireworks. When he returned to the carriage, it was gone, along with the two men and his younger brother. Charlie would never be seen again. Shortly after Charlie's disappearance, his father, Christian, began receiving ransom notes from the apparent kidnappers. 
The kidnappers demanded $20,000 and warned Christian not to get the police involved. While the Ross family owned a large house in the Philadelphia area, they weren't as wealthy as they appeared. In fact, Christian was allegedly in debt due to a stock market crash in 1873. When he couldn't pay the ransom, he went to the police and the press. The kidnapping soon became a national news story, with millions of posters featuring a sketch of Charlie being distributed throughout the city. On December 13th, five months after Charlie went missing, the house belonging to Judge Charles Van Brunt was broken into. Van Brunt's brother, Holmes, lived next door and gathered up a posse to investigate. Upon arriving at his brother's house, Holmes and his men caught two burglars in the act. A gunfight ensued, which left one of the burglars dead and another mortally wounded. They were identified as Bill Mosher and Joe Douglas, two career criminals who had just recently been released from jail. While no one knows for sure what occurred next, the general consensus is something along the lines of the following. Mosher was killed instantly, but Douglas was still alive. Realizing that his wounds were fatal, Douglas decided to confess that he and Mosher were behind Charlie's kidnapping. This is where things get a bit murky. Some reports say that Douglas claimed Charlie was already dead, while others state that Charlie was still alive and that he knew where Charlie was at that very moment. Either way, Douglas never gave a particular location and died soon thereafter. Charlie's brother Walter was brought in to identify the bodies of the two suspects, whom he claimed were the same men from the carriage. In the aftermath of the kidnapping, Christian went on to write a book called The Father's Story of Charlie Ross, The Kidnapped Child, using the funds to help search for Charlie. In the end, the Rosses were said to have interviewed more than 570 different boys claiming to be Charlie. In 1934, a 69-year-old man claimed to be Charlie Ross, saying he lived in a cave after the abduction until he was adopted. Then saying, quote, don't take candy from strangers, end quote, is thought to have come from the Charlie Ross case. You know, it's interesting, a lot of the common sayings that we use every day without even thinking about it come from really dark origins. Like, for instance, for whom the bell tolls, is one that pops in my head and I've researched it, but basically there was more people being buried alive than there should have been back in like the 19th century and before. So what people started doing was having strings fashioned from their coffins to a bell on the surface. So that way the workers at the graveyard could hear the bell ring if that person was buried alive because you know others thought they were dead or whatever the case may be but could you imagine waking up in a coffin and not having the bell option or any other option you're just under six feet of dirt in a hole running out of air it's horrifying the case of eric Muinter. in 1906 a german sympathizer teaching at harvard named eric Muinter poisoned his pregnant wife causing her death then fled to the country of mexico while this crime is disgusting and reprehensible, it's what Muenter did next that makes his case quite remarkable. After re-entering the country, he eventually settled in Texas under the name Frank Holt and began to work his way back up the academic ladder. Soon, 
He was a German professor at Cornell University. A self-proclaimed pacifist, Uinter was upset with America's stance during World War I. Several private businessmen were lending money and support to Great Britain and France, which Muinter despised, so he decided to take action into his own hands. On July 2, 1915, an explosion shook the U.S. Capitol building, smashing windows, blowing doors off their hinges, and causing quite a bit of damage. Nobody was hurt in the explosion. By the next day, Muinter was in New York City with a sizable amount of dynamite, he managed to sneak a timed bomb aboard the SS Minihanna, an ocean liner carrying explosives bound for England. Another bomb was placed at New York Police Headquarters, which is also believed to be the work of Muenter. Muenter then made his way to Glen Cove, where financier J.P. Morgan Jr. lived. Armed with two revolvers and a stick of dynamite, he forced his way into Morgan's mansion, eventually confronting J.P. Morgan Jr. himself. I would like to point out the bravery of the butler who answered the door. He led Uinter to a different corridor of the house, then yelled for the Morgans to hide. Uinter fired two shots into Morgan, but was subdued by the butler and a friend of Morgan's. Morgan survived the ordeal, and Uinter was arrested and sent to Nassau County Jail. On the evening of July 6th, he jumped to his death from his cell. The bomb he placed on the SS Minihanna did eventually go off but the ship was able to reroute and the fire from the bomb was safely put out. It's almost unfathomable to think that one man could walk into the U.S. Capitol building and leave a bomb there and on the very next day walk up to one of the wealthiest men of the country's door and force his way in. I'm a bit of a history buff and I can tell you one thing. I feel like World War I isn't covered by the media, documentary makers, all those types of folks as much as other wars that this country has experienced. I don't know. It's unfair because world war one was fascinating and some of the most horrible fighting that you could think of. I just feel like it should get more attention. I guess. I don't know. I'm ranting. Never mind. Funny. I was just going to tell you that you're ranting and that I do mind you doing it. Don't do that. Don't, have an opinion about something somebody was just saying then act as though you were just about to tell them not to say it to begin with don't don't do that it's pretentious and annoying don't tell me what to do bitch i only said what i said because it's the truth and what you think is pretentious or annoying carries no weight with me your thoughts and opinions have as much meaning to me as a garbage bag does the only difference is garbage bags serve a purpose Ooh, you are on one today jeez louise the case of Marcus Wesson. Marcus Wesson committed possibly the worst mass murder in Fresno, California history. The incident occurred after several family members showed up to his house demanding the return of their children. Police were called to mediate the child custody issue, but instead they became part of a standoff. The police claimed they did not hear the gunshots that killed nine people inside the home. The victims were Wesson's children and in some cases, they were the children he had fathered with his own daughters and nieces. Each had been shot through the eye. Inside the home, authorities also found a selection of antique caskets. Wesson had apparently instructed his children to be prepared to die in the event that the authorities tried to separate them. He had some intense religious beliefs and ultimately developed a cult within his own family. 
The quote-unquote vampire aspects of the religious cult came out later. Wesson presented a defense that his daughter committed the murders and then shot herself. Her DNA was found on the gun, but the argument was made that he had persuaded her to kill the children. Ultimately, Wesson was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder and an assortment of sexual crimes. He was sentenced to die in 2005. There you have it. Stories from the internet. Thoughts. As per usual, it was just more information on the horrible shit humans do to each other. And continue to do so. This podcast could literally go on forever. That's very depressing. Hey, sometimes there's a happy ending. Well, not happy, but there's justice at the end of some of these stories. Like R. Kelly just got 30 years for all the crap he did. There is a tiny bit of catharsis when these assholes finally pay for their crimes. But the stories leading up to that part are hard to listen to. I will never support erasing or ignoring history just because it turns your stomach. It's important to know these things to avoid the same thing happening in the future. That's why this information is is good for people to listen to and absorb just so they fully understand the horrors people are capable of inflicting on one another. It's really saving lives if you think about it on I guess a grandiose scale. I don't believe in erasing history either, but history is usually written by those that are on top. Like the KGB motto, trust but verify. Well you could trust that we have a Facebook page and you can verify it by going there. Facebook.com forward slash worldwide crime podcast. Post a comment in there. Let us know which of these stories was your favorite, which was the most believable, which may have been embellished a little bit. There's a little bit of all that in there. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Please give a five-star rating while you're there and leave a review. It's a tremendous help to the show. You could also follow the podcast and get notified every time there's a new episode. But until next time, guys, we appreciate you listening. We love you all. Be kind, stay safe, and we'll see you.